This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mysteries with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former Russian KGB spy. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Sample, on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the super awesome science show. Roses are red. Violets aren't blue. I get a rush from science. And so should you. Oh, yeah. It's time to talk about And the science behind it. This week, we're going to explore the most complex and mysterious of emotions with one of the world's leading experts on the topic, Dr. Helen Fisher. We'll get into the biology of love and what happens when you meet that special person. We'll also learn how chemicals in the brain help us decide whether we have made the right match. And in our SAS class, we're going to show you how to get over heartbreak. And I promise it doesn't involve sad songs or pints of ice cream. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Techo, and I'm going to spark a fire for love that will burn not in your heart, but in your mind. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Love. For more than 5,000 years, it has been the most enduring topic in human history. Poets have composed their odes and sonnets. Writers have produced their prose. Musicians have devoted passages. And philosophers have debated its meaning. As for scientists, for the most part, they had better things to do. But that changed in the 1940s when scientists decided it was time to unravel the mysteries of this all-encompassing emotion. They first had to devise a way to classify it, deconstructing it into smaller pieces so that we could get an idea as to what kind of love we were experiencing. In 1955, psychological clinical definitions were given to the different types of love. Love for a child. Brotherly love. Love for oneself. And the most important one, mature love. In the 1960s, a merger of sorts began to happen as researchers started to figure out how love could be better interpreted as a part of our biology. It wasn't easy. In 1969, the great psychiatrist Dr. Frederick T. Malgus compared the journey to understand the psychophysiological basis of emotion to Alice's adventures in Wonderland. It was a bit of a journey down the rabbit hole. 
As researchers develop new techniques to dig deeper into the body, the identification of love as a part of our nervous system became much more than just a theory. It started to become reality. And eventually, love went from being a mysterious emotion to one that could be concretely identified with brain scans. Eventually, three branches of research into the nature of love developed. There was the artistic, the psychological, and the neurological. At about the same time as this expansion in love research, Dr. Helen Fisher was receiving her doctorate in physical anthropology, human evolution, primatology, human sexual behavior, reproductive strategies. Just hearing the topic reveals that she was destined to act as the bridge between these three very different studies. Since 1975, Dr. Fisher has become one of the leading experts on the study of love. She has been prolific in the scientific literature, published several best-selling books, one of which, The Anatomy of Love, was so important that it had to be reissued and has been profiled in practically every form of media that exists. Not to mention, she's quite the poet. If there is anyone who can help us understand the nature of love, it's her. And that's why I'm happy to tell you that she's going to be with me for the entire show. She's currently a senior research fellow with the Kinsey Institute, whose mission is to advance sexual health and knowledge worldwide, and is the chief scientific advisor to the internet dating site Match.com. How did you manage to forge your path through this incredibly complex topic? I wish I had a sexy answer to that question, but I really don't. I'm an identical twin, and even as a small child, I knew, I just knew that there was biology to my behavior. I mean, we walked the same way, we laughed the same way, we smiled the same way, we liked the same foods, we had the same kind of friends, we liked the same kind of adventures. So as long as I was, even as a small child, I sort of intuitively knew that there was biology to my behavior. And then when I got into graduate school, uh, I was being taught in those days that everything was learned, that the mind was a blank slate on which environment inscribed personality. And I knew it wasn't true. And in fact, I even remember writing various exams in which I pretended that it was true because I wanted to get a good grade. But when it came to writing my PhD dissertation, I thought to myself, if there's any part at all of human behavior that comes out of our biology, it would be our reproductive patterns. Because as Darwin said, if you have four children and I have no children, you live on and I die out. So you would have thought, I would have thought then that there was selection for certain kinds of behavior that would enable some people to have babies and pass on their DNA. So that's really what got me into it. And I thought to myself, okay, if there's any part of the human animal that came out of our, that, that is, you know, expressive of biology, biological tendencies, it's romance, it's attachment, it's the drive to be loved. And then, you know, you, you, I've always loved poetry and I've always loved literature and, and uh, theater and opera. And they all talk about, um, about romance. I mean, everywhere in the world, people have myths and legends or they've got operas and ballets and theater and poems and songs and books and holidays about love. So it seems so universal to me. And because I was an identical twin, I was absolutely convinced that uh, that, uh, that part of human uh, uh, behavior came out of nature. You had a book that, that literally took love and, and science and put it together. You call it the anatomy of love. I look back at it and I think, boy, I wonder if I was crazy. I mean, uh, in a nice way. 
I mean, that book, it was my second book, and my first book came out in 1982, and my second one came out in 1992. It took me 10 years to write that book. But And then um, I did a second version of it. I never would have done the second version, but thank God I did, that came out in 2016. It was only because the publisher called me and said, Helen, this is a classic. Uh, you know, uh, would you just write a new introduction and a new final chapter and, and we'll do it again? And at the time I said, oh, no problem. You know, the first version took me 10 years. The second version may take me 10 days. Well, anyway, then I sat and read the book, and the first thing I did was sit down and cry. Oh, no. <laughs> it took me another three years to, but of course, twenty almost 25 years had passed, and so um, I'd done a great deal of uh, collecting new data. I'd put people now in brain scanners and studied the brain circuitry of it. I A lot of new fossil finds had come out, uh, and all of my uh, newest data that I collected with Match.com, the internet dating site, gave me much richer perspective and and so any but i'm very glad i i i updated it a good 50 percent of it is new and i and that's important to me and, and yet when you look at both versions the first thing we see is that you make the statement humans are a pair bonding species as you're getting into the book you actually talk about three big pieces of the puzzle that really make us human, that, that sort of attraction, romance, and attachment. And, and I love how you sort of show the evolution of that. Why, why do you think we have to go through all of this in order to find love? Well, I don't, I'm not sure we do. I mean, I, you know, what, one thing I have, I have really been able to prove is that the brain circuitry for romantic love lies way in the base of the brain, actually near various uh, factories that uh, orchestrate thirst and hunger. And thirst and hunger are going to get you through the day, and uh, drive to love somebody is going to drive you to form a pair bond and, and, and have babies and pass your DNA into tomorrow. So as I did the brain scanning, I began to see more and more the real importance of this. And what's interesting, I think, is how many people want the science. It's almost as if they, you know, you can lie in bed and feel intense romantic love. You don't need to read a book on it. I, we don't um, want to go there. But, I think that, <laughs> <laughs> but the bottom line is it validates it. It explains it. It you, you begin to understand, I mean, certainly with my book, and Anatomy of Love, and with others of mine by other people, too, um, you, I think it validates us. I think, and of course, my, my study of personality and why you fall for one person rather than another, I think is, is, is quite valuable to people. But, and also, I mean, I'm very optimistic about trends today. Everybody else is pessimistic. I've got a lot of data showing why we're heading in a very fine direction. And I think all that, I mean, you say, well, why do we need all this? I think it validates our own feelings. I think it gives us a sense of self-confidence, a more understanding of self and others. Uh, and and a real sort of belief that it can happen to me too, because it will. I mean, these brain systems, you know, you know, the brain circuitry for romantic love is like a sleeping cat. It can be awakened at any time, at any age. I mean, I know a, a little boy who was two and a half who was madly in love with, a, not sexually, but madly in love with a little girl, and I have a friend who's in his 90s, and he's madly in love with somebody. So it's a brain circuit like the fear system. You know, you can be scared any time of your life, and you can be madly in love and, and have a real drive to attach. These are basic brain systems that made us who we are. And, you know, you say, well, okay, you know, various yeasts um, form pair bonds. Only 97%, uh, I mean, 97% of, of mammals do not pair up. I mean, if somebody dropped in from Mars and 
uh, you know, wrote a little essay on what humans are like, I think one of the first things that they would say is how remarkable it is that we live for love, pine for love, kill for love, die for love, and form pair bonds around the world. And even when we divorce, sure enough, we're back on the circuit finding a new partner. It's a very powerful brain system that distinguishes us from uh, uh, almost all mammals. Many of the traits that we have when it comes to trying to attract someone else for that pair bond are instinctual. The, yeah. the, the whole idea of flirting, the, the, the eyebrow, the chest thumping or the stomach sucking in. <laughs> I mean, I never really thought of it, but yeah, those are instinctual. You do it without even thinking about it. And, and we know that because when you're looking at the brain, if it happens within that 650 milliseconds, you know that it's instinctual yeah. as opposed to uh, something that you've thought about, which usually takes a minimum of 0.75 seconds to get there. I call it the three-part coy look. I mean, possums do exactly the same thing. People do it. They stick their neck out, they twist their head to the side, and they um, look up. And you see it in an awful lot of other creatures as well. I mean, kissing. I mean, a very albatross tap their bills together. Uh, mice rub noses. Uh, I just saw a picture of, of actually of two mice that were given some oxytocin, which stimulates pear body, and then they're just wrapped in a, wrapped in each other. Uh, same thing with octopuses. Uh, an octopus, uh, given some attachment uh, chemicals, will race straight into another octopus or rather than going in the opposite direction to see something that is new and different and curious to them, like a toy. Um, and so, I mean, we really are built to love. One of the most powerful brain systems we ever evolved. One thing that I find so fascinating is when everybody talks about that first kiss, right? It's the romanticism. Yeah. You've got the music. And if you happen to be watching New York City rom-coms, it's like the moment you know the movie has been made. But here's the thing. <laughs> when you read your book, you're, you're suggesting that it may be not as glorious as we might think and that it might be dangerous to have that first kiss. You got to tell me, what do you mean by that? Well, it comes from um, somebody else's study, and they asked, you know, have you ever had the kiss of death? I mean, you, you know, you were sort of beginning to feel romantic towards the person, and then you kissed them, and it was horrible. And that sort of killed it for you. A kiss is very powerful. I mean, you know, it stimulates five of the 12 cranial nerves. Um, I mean, you really can see the person, taste the person, smell the person, hear the person, and feel the person. I mean, the brain is, you know, is dramatically stimulated. And it can be a real turnoff. Same thing with the first sex. I mean, it's a very interesting. You know, I do this national study with Match called Singles in America. We do not poll the Match members. We poll the American public. It's based. It's a. It's a national representative sample based on the U.S. Census. And and you know, an awful lot of people will 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 say that that first kiss was revolting for them. And, you know, uh, oh and and it ended a partnership. So. Um, but it can stimulate it, too. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, novelty drives up the dopamine system and can push you over the threshold into falling madly in love with somebody. So it's dangerous, as you say, because it can really go one way or the other. When you talk about that dopamine rush, one thing that we look at in neuroscience is how dopamine is related to, as you said earlier, cravings and maybe even addiction. How are you able to di identify sort of how love goes from being this wonderful ethereal concept to something that becomes a problem that we really need to be thinking about in the same way that we do, say, alcohol or, or drugs or gambling? Right. Uh, absolutely. Um, um, 
you know, when I first put people in the brain scanner, I, I put in people who were madly and happily in love. And that um, went all over the world. Everybody seemed to be very interested in that. But I thought to myself in my spare time, what difference does it make? I mean, who cares about what happens in the brain when you're happily in love? What's really important is what happens when you are rejected in love, because that's when people stalk, kill themselves, uh, kill somebody else, slip into clinical depression, etc. So that's when I put the rejected people in the brain scanner. And I was absolutely convinced that romantic love was an addiction. And sure enough, I found um, when, I, when we put people who had just been rejected into the brain scanner, we found activity in a lot of brain regions, but one of them was the basic brain region called the nucleus accumbens that becomes active during all addictions, not only substance addictions, but behavioral addictions like kleptomania or sex addiction or food addiction or gambling addiction. This particular brain region, the nucleus accumbens, becomes active in all of the addictions, and sure enough, it comes, becomes active when you are rejected in love. And that led me to think, no, wait a minute, maybe romantic love is, is not only a negative addiction when it goes badly, but it, maybe it's also a positive addiction when it's going well. And this is where I, uh, I give speeches on this. I'm trying to convince people into the fact that here we have something that is a positive addiction also, something that can be incredibly useful in... You know, when you're madly in love with somebody, you overlook an awful lot of things to build that partnership. I mean, you can change in many ways, not only your clothes and your appearance, but your habits and even where you live and your attitudes, political attitudes, all kinds of things can change when you're madly in love with somebody. So it's as if the brain becomes addicted to somebody else happily or unhappily. And I think it helps you really understand it more. I, You know, a lot of psychologists... You know, therapists will say, you know, somebody stumbles into their office and and says, you know, I can't stop thinking about her or I can't stop thinking about him. I'm obsessed with this person and they've rejected me. And, you know, the therapist might say, might say, maybe they don't, but uh, they'll say, well, just give it up, you know. Well, they can't give it up. They've got to treat it as an addiction. So the more we understand what love is, the more we can understand really the quite bizarre behavior that people have when they're happily in love and also when they have been rejected in love. And I think that's where um, we can help, uh, where some of this work has maybe can contribute to the medical community. As I mentioned earlier, Dr. Fisher happens to be working with Match.com, which is one of the largest internet dating sites. While you might think the work may have little meaning in terms of the science of love, As a paper she published in 2013 reveals, the results have given us even more insight into our behavior and how we can find the right mate. Here's where it gets awesome. She has managed to identify human patterns based on chemicals in the brain. This means instead of taking a variety of non-scientific quizzes and polls to determine whether you and your partner really are meant to be together, you can take her survey and find out which personality you happen to be. It's called the Fisher Temperament Inventory. The test is so effective, it is the basis of another dating site called chemistry.com. As Dr. Fisher states on that site, the test offers a chemistry starter to help identify the right person for you. How did you even come up with the idea of trying to separate humanity into four different types of people and then 
figure out how this links or relates to a certain chemical in the brain. It started two days before Christmas in 2005 when I got a telephone call from Match.com. And nothing happens right before Christmas. Anyway, they invited me to come into their offices in New York two days after Christmas. So in I went, and they all filed into this room. I didn't know who was who, whether they were other academics, whatever. Anyway, at one point, they ended up being the CEO, said to me, why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? And I recall saying, I really don't know. I mean, nobody knows. We do tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence and good looks and education, who have the same, you know, religious and social and economic values and reproductive desires, etc. But you can walk into a room and everybody's from your background and level of intelligence and good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them. So I was walking out of that office and I thought to myself, you know, People will say we have chemistry or we don't have chemistry. And I thought to myself, could basic biology naturally draw us to one person rather than another? So then I began to look into the brain because I studied the brain anyway. And as it turns out, there's a lot of systems in the brain, as you know, but there's only four basic brain systems that are each one of them linked with a constellation of personality traits, the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems. So I took out four sheets of paper on my desk, and I began to list the traits linked with these basic four brain systems. So, for example, if you're very expressive of the dopamine system, you tend to be novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, novelty-seeking, mentally flexible. So I had that on one sheet of paper. And then I listed the traits with the serotonin system, traditional, conventional, follows the rules, respects authority, likes rules and schedules, tends to be more religious, and that's on a second sheet of paper. And I'd written a book on gender differences, so I knew the traits linked with testosterone and estrogen. And I thought to myself, maybe I could create a questionnaire to see to what degree you express the traits in all four of these systems, put them on Match.com and a related site, Chemistry.com, have people take my questionnaire, see what they are like, and then watch who they're naturally drawn to. So that's what I did. And that questionnaire has now been taken by over 14 million people in 40 countries, and I've been able to to study it. And what's interesting, it's it's really interesting to me. For example, myself and my boyfriend, we're both very high dopamine. I mean, we both novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, uh, hopefully very creative. He's a writer also, et cetera, et cetera. So in that way, we're very similar. And those two types, dopamine is drawn to dopamine. Uh, energetic, curious, creative, want somebody like themselves. Um, he's very high testosterone, and I'm very high estrogen. He's a techie. I mean, my house is wired with Alexa and you name it. I mean, he's analytical, logical, direct, decisive, can be tough-minded, whereas I'm much <laughs> more high estrogen. I'm empathetic, pathetically empathetic. I hope good people's skills and verbal skills, imaginative, see the big picture, et cetera. So we have wonderful conversations. Those, you know, testosterone also goes for estrogen. So in those ways, in those basic systems, we are very compatible. But he's higher on the serotonin system. So he is more likely to follow the rules, respect authority, um, um, 
uh, he life schedules and plans. He's got me putting everything I do on this Google Maps. I wouldn't dream of doing that myself. <laughs> I mean, it just drives me nutty. I mean, one night, but that's okay. That's who he is, and it's not because of his childhood. One of the things that I really have, love to have people understand is it's not always because of your mother. <laughs> we seem to be in a psychological state right killing, now where everything is blamed on your parents and your upbringing, and some people are stubborn because they were born that way. Some people are energetic and curious and creative because they were born that way. They were, they're built that way. And the more we can understand who our partner, our friends, and our family really are, then we can do a workaround. If someone wants to figure out how they fit on this uh, scale of, of the four different types, is there a way that they can find, um, you know, the test? Uh, uh, is there a website? How, how can they do that? Because I know I want to do that, even though I think I have an idea as to what I might be. You're high dopamine. You've got to be. What else do you think you are? Oh, I'm dopamine and uh, estrogen all the way. That's what I would have said, because you're verbally skilled and you've got a wonderful sense with people. And, and, and that, that's, that, I, I would have guessed that instantly. Okay. You can certainly get my book. I think it costs $6. It's um, Why Him? Why Her? The test is in there. Uh, in why him, why her, but also a good deal of, of explanation of it. And, you know, okay, if you marry somebody who's not high estrogen or high testosterone, how do you talk to them? What do you do? You know, so that's the book. But you could also go to one of my websites. It's called uh, theanatomyoflove.com. It's a big website. I do it with my brain scanning partner, Lucy Brown, and you can get it there with, with some feedback. And I'm also told it's all over the Internet, although I've never looked. So I think it wouldn't be hard at all to find. It's Ask Class time, and we're going to do a bit of a 180-degree turn on love and head straight into the realm of rejection. Being dumped is a part of life, although for the longest time, researchers suggested it was a short-term problem that could be resolved quickly over time. As you heard earlier, Dr. Fisher's results say otherwise. It can be a painful experience that could send you into a tailspin that lasts for far longer than you might expect or want. The severity of that heartbreak comes down to those neurochemicals and how they can act against you. Rejection sucks, pure and simple. But what happens in the brain is, well, kind of awesome. What has your research found about the anatomy of rejection? Yeah, I was really interested in what happens in the brain when you are rejected in love because it's one of the most profoundly awful human experiences. And what happens is, uh, so we put uh, 15 people who had just been dumped in the machine. They were all horribly distressed. People sobbed. Uh, other people were very angry. Anyway, the bottom line is we found activity in several brain regions. A brain region linked with intense feelings of romantic love. I mean, just because you've been dumped. In fact, it can make you love them even more. Uh, we found activity in a brain region linked with feelings of deep attachment. You're just not attached. You can't just detach overnight. You still feel the attachment and the romantic love. But we found three brain regions linked with craving and addiction. You crave this person. Last but not least, we found activity in a brain region linked with physical pain. Not just the stress of pain, but physical pain. In fact, that brain is the same brain region that becomes active when you have a toothache. Uh, the difference, of course, is that after you get your tooth fixed, you don't think about it five days later, and it can take people months or even years to get over uh, rejection. It really hurts. 
it really does sound like withdrawal. Is, is that kind of what we're seeing? Yes. And as a matter of fact, we have been able to prove that time heals because we did put people in the machine uh, who had been rejected um, only a couple months ago and people who had been rejected almost two years ago. And they were all still suffering, but what's interesting, what we found that was interesting is among the people who were, had been rejected almost two years ago, there was less and less activity in this brain region linked with attachment. So time does heal. Uh, the one thing you really got to do when you've been rejected, when you want to get over this, is treat it as an addiction. Get rid of the cards and letters. Don't write. Don't call. Don't show up. Don't ask your friends how the person is. Um, get on with doing your own things. Keep moving. There's somebody camping in your head. You've got to get them out. So get some exercise. That drives up the dopamine system. Um, hug your friends. That drives up the oxytocin system and relaxes you. Um, do novel new things. Uh, that drives up dopamine and, and can give you more energy and focus and motivation and optimism. When it comes to time, I I don't know if you remember that Sex and the City episode where Charlotte needs half the time of a relationship before seeking a new partner. I always thought it was hilarious and, and completely unscientific. And from what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like each and every person is going to be different in, in how much time they're going to need to be able to to move on. Do you think that there might be a way to be able to test the neurochemicals to find out whether a person is ready to, to sort of get back in the saddle? really interesting. I think that, sure, I mean, I think that some uh, some chemical uh, studies uh, would be very important, but, you know, we're not measuring the memory system and how people dissolve those thrilling memories of a human being, we don't know. So it's more than just, you know, chemicals. I mean, you've lost your daily habits and routines. You, you may have lost friends and neighbors. You may have lost a house. You may have lost children and the dog. You may be economically uh, compromised. You may have lost the opportunity to marry somebody and have babies. And, and so you've, that's a genetic loss. And even if you've already had your babies, you, you may have lost the, a partner to help you raise those babies. So the brain, is, it really suffers. As a matter of fact, when I was writing that book, Why We Love, I thought to myself, why don't we just get over these things easily? Why did this evolve to suffer so much when you've been rejected in love? I didn't understand that. But when you think about it, you've lost so much that it might be adaptive to try to win that back, to keep the feelings of rejection and try to win that back. There's two basic, three basic stages, really, of, of, of rejection. The first thing that happens to people when they've been rejected is they protest. Uh, you know, they will, uh, you know, women will try to seduce, uh, men will try to challenge their rival. They look for clues of what went wrong. They focus their attention. They obsessively think about it. They swing from hope to regret to nostalgia to jealousy to abandonment rage. You know, it's a very powerful thing. And I think what's going on is we've evolved this protest stage in order to just try to understand this and to try to win the person back. And that's adaptive. If you can win your reproductive partner back and send those babies into the future, you would win second stage is called resignation and despair and you just you've now you've given up really given up so you a sense of hopelessness uh, despondency lethargy really clinical depression sometimes even de- despair suicide and we go through that and after a while the brain recovers it wants to live time does heal 
you move on, you still remember it. People don't forget the people that have dumped them, but it doesn't have that potency. It doesn't have that uh, oh anger and disappointment anymore. It's just a memory. It's you know, and then you can move on. And we do. The vast majority of people move on and marry somebody else and even think of themselves, why did I go through all that? Why did I care so much? I've got something so much better now. We're built to love. Uh, and and the vast majority of people will uh, recover and love again. But it does take time. For anyone who isn't celebrating Valentine's Day because of a breakup, what would you say is the best way to keep on healing or to stay balanced other than maybe to pick up a copy of one of your books? <laughs> <laughs> Get out and do anything new. Anything new, novelty, 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 it drives up the dopamine system in the brain and gives you focus, motivation, energy, and optimism. You need to feel well before you can attract new people. So you've got to do a little work on yourself. I would also give up sugar and and white carbs and get a lot of exercise and uh, rekindle old friendships, but just keep moving. The brain wants to heal, but if you sit there in a lump... Uh, there's somebody camping in your head, and it'll just it'll just get to you. Just get up and keep moving. Do things that are interesting, fun, new, different, and life affirming, and you will move on. Well, that's it for this week's Sascast. I hope you have a new appreciation for love and how powerful it is in our lives. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. Thanks to you, we've been nominated for a Canadian Podcast Award in the Science and Medicine series. We'll put the link in the show notes, and if you are a podcaster, please vote for us. If you have any questions or want to make a comment on the show, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. For ideas longer than 280 characters, including topics for the show, you can email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen to us at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. Enjoy Valentine's Day. And as always... Make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.